issue or an issue, a problem, a scenario, a situation in your life that you know will inevitably sooner or later come to a head. Alright, a problem that sooner or later is going to come ahead. Let's say it's with a car. Right? You know how it is. You sort of take the car to the local garage and you leave it and then you come back and you speak to the mechanic about it and he's outside the garage shaking his head, you know. And he says that a timing belt change in the car is long overdue but you just look at him knowing that at this point in your life you simply do not have the money to pay for this huge job. So what happens? You end up driving around the city in a car that sooner or later is just going to go pop. It's going to leave you stranded, isn't it? Most probably in the North Circular and a rush hour. So a problem, you with me? Problem that will inevitably sooner or later come ahead. Well, what we've got to understand is that that is what has been going on all the way through the book of Acts. Okay? Now, we know, because we were told in Acts chapter 1, we know what, what the, that this book that we're studying is all about, don't we? We know that it is about the church being, what was it, Jesus' witnesses. Remember, there's three stages of it. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria. What was the last stage? The church being Jesus' witnesses to all the nations of the world. Do you see the problem? These are Jews in Jerusalem, aren't they? I mean, these are Jewish law-abiding Christians that are being told to take the gospel message to whom? To Gentile people. You see the problem? There's a whole raft of obstacles in their way. They are not allowed to socialize with the Gentiles. They are not allowed to accept hospitality from the Gentiles. They are not allowed to sort of gather and eat the same food as the Gentiles. Do you, do you see the problem here? The problem that acts. It is a major problem, a problem that as we go through this series was inevitably, it was bound to, as sooner or later in this book, come to a head. And then we turn to Acts chapter 10. And what we see here is that not only does that problem come to a head here. What we also see wonderfully, friends, is how God intended the church to overcome that problem. So, if you haven't done so, please pick up your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 10, okay? And like a play, like the theatre, okay, like an opera, Let's look at the first of the three acts. The first of the three scenes that we've got in this chapter. Okay, so let's consider act one here. And let's consider the angelic instruction given to this man Cornelius. The angelic instruction. Let's consider that. Okay. At the beginning of the chapter, we are introduced to this man by the name of Cornelius. Now, this guy um, is an incredibly sort of significant figure for the, 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 the future witness of the church. He's a big guy, this guy, Cornelius. So the first thing we've got to do is try and work out who he was. You know, what was Cornelius like? What are we told about him, okay? So who's Cornelius? 
First thing we know is that he was a soldier. Right? So he is a centurion. So he's a man of sort of fairly significant military responsibility. Right? That's, that's fine, okay. We're told a wee bit more. We're told that he was part of the Italian regiment. That's not just a throwaway detail, is it? That means that this guy, Cornelius, was a Roman. This guy was not a Jew. Okay? Then we're told that he was a God-fearing man. Now, again, that's not just Luke sort of throwing away a nice description. You know, Gabriel or or somebody else. God-fearing man. It's not like that. This was a technical description. God-fearers were people who worshipped Yahweh, worshipped the Lord, but who had not yet converted to Judaism, okay? So they worshipped the Lord, but they didn't necessarily do that inside the synagogue, okay? And we're told that, that Cornelius was one of these guys. And then we're told about his faith. I mean, we're told that this man was a, a pious guy, Cornelius. Did you see that? He and his family, faithful people. Here's a guy who's, who's you know, given money to the poor. Here is a man who is living out his faith. So that's who we're seeing. We're seeing a, a pretty devout man here. Okay, that's who he is. What is it that happens to Cornelius? Did you see that? What happens to Cornelius here? Well, simply put, what we find is that one day an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius. So something pretty dramatic happens to him, doesn't it? We're told later on that the angel appears to him, sort of stands before him in bright, shining clothes, okay? And the angel speaks to him. And it's very, very simple what the angel says to Cornelius, isn't it? He basically says, Cornelius, off you go. Send some of your guys to Joppa. Bring back Peter. So you see, that's it. There's, there's, there's no explanation as to why Peter's coming. There's no frills to the angelic instructions. Very simple. Cornelius, send some guys to job, I bring back Peter, and, and Cornelius instantly goes and he obeys this angel. Okay, so we're following it so far. We see who Cornelius is, devout. We see what happens, an angel. What is it that we as a congregation should be thinking about this morning with Cornelius? What should we be thinking about? Please hear this. There is one phrase that we need to hear and absorb about Cornelius. We see in him that most often the spiritually significant events in our lives, they come when we kneel before God. I'll say it again. Most often the spiritually significant moments in our lives, they're going to happen, they're going to occur when we kneel before our God. Because I'm going to ask you a really daft question. Do you see at what time of day it was that the angel appeared to Cornelius? Did you see it? I think it's verse 3 if your Bibles are open. What time of day was it? It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now you see, uh, so hot man, you know, there doesn't seem to be anything significant about that. Well, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, friends, was the time of prayer in the synagogue. And although we've sort of said, oh, Cornelius is a God-feeder, so he's not worshipping God in the synagogue. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30 here. You know, verse 30 is later on. This is where Cornelius is speaking to Peter and he's, he's telling him about this vision that he's had of an angel. Look what he says in verse 30. He says, Peter, I saw an angel, man. 
four days ago as I was in my house praying. Do you see the point here? God is active in Acts chapter 10. And let me tell you, what we're going to see is he is active in this awesome way. And when is he active? He is active when a simple man like Cornelius just gets down on his knees. And he prays to him. But tell you what, let me deal with an objection. Because you might, you might be sitting there thinking, Andy, you're pushing this a wee bit, man. Okay, we can see in verse 30 that Cornelius was praying, but it doesn't seem to be much of Luke's emphasis here. No? Have a look at verse 9. Give verse 9. What was Peter doing when the same thing happened to him? <laughs> look at it. Verse 9. Peter went up onto the roof to pray. What was our phrase? Most often, the spiritually significant moments in our lives, they happen when? What happens? We get down on our knees to pray. But let me, let me suggest, you're still not convinced by this. If not, think about this. What were the most spiritually significant moments of Jesus' life and ministry? You know, if, if you were to see, what were the sort of markers, the spiritual markers of Jesus' own life, what would you say? What were the spiritual markers of Jesus' life? You'd go for the baptism of Jesus, would you not? Surely? I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than the baptism, does it? You remember that? The sort of, the, all the triune involvement in the baptism and the, the voice of the Father, you know, affirming Jesus' ministry going out. I mean, it's huge spiritually. It's a massive moment. Do you know what we often miss? It happens as Jesus kneels before his Father in prayer. What about another spiritual marker? What about the transfiguration? Again, you know, massive spiritual significance. And Jesus' appearance changes and Moses and Elijah appear before him. It's massive, isn't it? What do we often miss? It all happens as Jesus kneels before his Father in prayer. Friends, I hope you see not only the significance of Cornelius, but I hope you see the significance of his actions here. God is going to do wonderful things in Acts chapter 10. And they come about because a man is praying. So let me ask you a question to the Christians here. Do you want to be used powerfully by God in this life? You know, time's ticking by. The years are going by. Do you want to be used powerfully by God? Well, let me say to you, if you do, the place that that most often happens it is the place of prayer. We must be praying, people. So we see Act 1 here, don't we? And we see the angelic instruction to Cornelius. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider our second act. And let's consider the divine lessons for Peter. The divine lessons for Peter. Okay, um, this might not be true, but I think it is that uh, sometimes at this point uh, on a Sunday morning, that if we're honest, uh, we can become a, a wee bit peckish, I think, you know, 
that it gets towards the, the end of the worship service and we're thinking about going home and our minds can turn uh, to our Sunday roast and our, our Sunday lunch. Well, I do hope that that's not what we think happened with Peter in here. You know, because when we're thinking about the sort of second scene in this vision he has, we read that he's hungry, don't we? And we read that he has a vision. Let's not put those two things too tightly together and think that this is some sort of hunger-induced hallucination. It is not. The day after Cornelius sees the angel, Peter too sees a clear and a startling vision from the Lord. Now, let me say this before we carry on. The second section here, this vision, is of incredible significance for for the rest of the book of Acts. What Peter sees here and what it means is also of incredible significance to to the future ministry of God's church. This is huge, this vision. So let us take it step by step to make sure that we understand it as a congregation. First of all, did you notice what it was that, 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 that Peter sees here? What does he see in the vision? Well, he sees the heavens open, first of all, doesn't he? But um, unlike uh, Stephen, do you remember that? When Stephen saw the heavens open, unlike that, Peter does not see the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, does he? What does he see? Surely you think it's strange in some ways what he sees. He sees a big sheet. (laughs) That's what he sees. A big, huge sheet descending from the skies. And in this sheet, he sees numerous animals, doesn't he? But let's get this. It is not just a collection of animals that Peter sees, okay? Make sure that you get this. He sees the supposedly unclean animals that Leviticus 11 says were forbidden for the people of God to eat. He sees unclean animals. That's what he sees. Then he hears a voice from God, and it is a voice telling him. Now, a Jew, a law-abiding Jew, he is told to kill and to eat these unclean animals. Now, that's what he sees. Again, I ask you the question, What is it that he is being told about? What is this vision here about? Well, first of all, Peter's been taught here that in the Christian era after Christ, that the Jewish food laws were redundant. You know all that stuff? You know your Bibles and Leviticus. You know all the the ceremonial cleansing of foods, these, these rituals? In this vision, Peter's learning that after Jesus Christ, those things are gone and they are superfluous. Just listen to what the voice says. It says, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. So do do you see that? Are you following it? He sees the vision and he learns, hang on, these food laws are, are, are redundant, they are gone. Now, do you begin to see then the significance of the vision? Do you? Remember the problem that we started the sermon with? What was the problem of Acts? You've got Jews, and they want to go out with the gospel, but they can't. There's so many obstacles. There's so many hurdles. Look at the vision. God is saying to the church, friends, forget it. Don't worry about the obstacles. Don't worry about being ceremonially unclean. Don't worry about these obstacles with the Gentiles. They are gone. 
And just to confirm that, what happens after the vision? The, the doorbell goes, doesn't it? And it's Gentiles at the door. And the Spirit says to Peter, Peter, go with them. Do not worry about the cleansing. Do not worry about the food laws. Go and tell the Gentiles the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. So it's massive. We see that. The obstacles are gone. But if anything, there is a greater lesson we learn here. Now, eh, we're an educated bunch, aren't we? London City Presbyterian Church. So we have all heard of eh, the French sculptor eh, Auguste Rodin. We have all heard of him. Uh, and even if we are not entirely familiar, there's a few people shaking their heads. Um, but I'm sure, sure even if we are uh, not familiar with his work, we can all picture Rodin's The Thinker. Can we not? You know, that bronze sculpture with uh, the man with his head down deep in thought. Yes, surely. Well, really, that is what we should be picturing Peter as here. Because... After this vision, in verse 17, we have got this man wrestling with what has happened. I mean, he really is, you know, he's, he's deep in thought, his head down. He is wondering about the, the greater significance of what he has just seen. And then what we find is that when he gets into the, when we get into the third act, you know, when we get to Cornelius' house, by the time he gets there, he's worked it out. God has revealed to Peter what the greater significance of this vision is. That this was not just, this vision of the the animals, this was not just about food laws. That for God, in God's sight, the Gentiles themselves were not to be viewed as unclean, you see. This vision was about the fact that for God, the Gentiles did not have to be cleansed by becoming Jews before they became Christians. That they did not have to be cleansed through circumcision before they were explained and shown the good news of Jesus Christ. Just think about how it is that that Peter greets Cornelius when eventually these guys meet. I mean, it's a massive moment. And they meet. And what does Peter say? He doesn't say, you know, Cornelius, God has shown me this great vision. And he showed me about food laws. No, I'll read to you what he says. In verse 28, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man, I should not call any Gentile unclean. This is a massive moment for the New Testament church. But as we consider that, I ask you another question. Do you think it's possible that we in here make the same mistake that the New Testament church had been making up until this point? Do you think we view certain sections of society as being truly unclean, impure, needing cleansed somehow before we would speak to them about the gospel? A couple of years ago, I went to an inter-church meeting. They didn't have a sermon. They had a video. And it was the worst video I have ever seen in my life. This video portrayed not Islam. 
But Muslim people as satanic, as impure, as unclean, as the very enemy of Christians. Now, I know what you're going to say, but you're going to say Islam stands opposed to biblical Christianity. Of course it does. But Muslim people, these are people who are made in the image of God. And they are people who are lost. And they are people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet, is there part of us even in here that think like great swathes of Western Christianity that they don't? And we shouldn't bring the gospel to them. Do we think that they are impure and unclean and unworthy of our witness? Do we think of the Muslims? Do we think of it of the poor? The disenfranchised, perhaps? The lower classes, even? Friends, we have to be so very, very careful. What we see in Acts chapter 10 is that for God... There are no barriers for the gospel. You know what we are called to do? Individually as a church, we are called to indiscriminately proclaim the good news to all the nations of the world. So we see Act 1 and Act 2. Okay, use your imagination, all right? The curtain has gone down. And there's been a break, an interval. We retake our seats. The curtain goes up for the third and final act. And there has been a set change. And we are now at Cornelius, Cornelius's house. Okay, so the third act here is the idyllic gathering of the church. The idyllic gathering of the church. Okay, so <coughs> Peter goes to Cornelius's house after the vision. And he gets to Cornelius' house. Cornelius comes out to meet him. Okay, great moment. And then what happens is that the pair of them, these guys, they go into Cornelius' house. And what we've got a picture is the fact that that house is bursting at the seams. All right? That house is just jam-packed full of people, just crammed with people. And Peter gets up and he preaches to them, preaches the gospel. And then did you see what happens at the end? the chapter there is dare I say what seems almost like a Gentile Pentecost we know Pentecost was a one off moment look at the end here you have the Holy Spirit descend not on Jews but descend on Gentiles and they speak in tongues they speak in tongues and they are baptised so what do we think about as we close well um, I know that there's a, a lot of sort of voracious readers in the congregation, a lot of people who, who love a good novel. And they will uh, affirm and support me in the fact that there is probably nothing better, is there? That when you discover an author, maybe one that not many people know, an author who has incredible powers of description. Yeah, there's nothing better than reading a book and there's a scene in it and it's described in such a way that it kind of comes to life, you know? And it just seems like an idyllic and a perfect scene, yes? What I want us to see here is that for us as a congregation, that gathering in Cornelius' house 
That's the idyllic scene. That is what we as a congregation should be working toward. And that is what we should be praying for. Why? First of all, see that it is an invited gathering of people, isn't it? I mean, Peter doesn't arrive and sort of open the door and there's Cornelius on his couch with his kids and that's it. No, Cornelius loves God. We've seen that. And Cornelius loves the people in his life. So do you you read what he does in verse 24? He invites all of the people in his life. He invites all of his relatives and he invites all of his friends to come and hear about this gospel that is to be spread throughout the earth. Is that not what we should be doing? Friends, is that not what we should be doing Sunday by Sunday? Inviting people to hear about Jesus Christ? It's an invited gathering. No, also, it's an expectant gathering. You know, we're told that, 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 that Peter gets up to preach, you know, and, and he opens the word and, and he speaks to all these people. But just before he does that, there's a really a touching moment and it's like Cornelius has a word in his ear just before he preaches. Look what Cornelius says. He says, Peter, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has for you to tell us. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great word? And isn't that how we should approach our church services? You know, meeting in the sight of God just now, in here, meeting to hear from God about this this gospel that is to go to to all people, should that not excite us? Should we not be expecting as Christians? And then the last one, last thing. Note that it was also an amazed gathering. These people in that house, Cornelius's house, were amazed by the grace of God. I mean, Peter does eventually get up after that word from Cornelius. And look how he begins his sermon. I mean, he's beginning his sermon in absolute awe of what God has shown him, that the Gentiles are able to hear the gospel, that the gospel's for them. He's in awe. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And then the whole thing ends with even the Jewish Christians, the, one that, the ones that have come from Joppa, they are flabbergasted as the Holy Spirit descends on Gentiles. And friends, that is what we should be like. We truly should be in sheer awe of this gospel. You know, we, we shouldn't come to church today, this morning, just seeking to understand Acts chapter 10. You know, that God is breaking down the barriers to the gospel expansion. We shouldn't just be trying to tick that box. This stuff we're learning about here should really engender an evangelistic fervor for us. And perhaps more than that, it should prompt us to a proper worship of God. You think about it. The gospel wasn't just for one historic people tucked away in the Middle East. This gospel was for us. You know, this gospel was for all the, the people of the world to hear. I mean, it should take our breath away. So I want to end like this. I want to speak to you if you are not a Christian this morning. Is it perhaps that over the last wee while you have sensed a, 
an increased awareness of your sin. Now, is it perhaps the case that that you see that you are not right before God? Well, can I say to you that in this gospel that we are talking about, that is to be spread through to all people, there is in Jesus Christ forgiveness available for that sin. So I say to you, make sure that it isn't you that thinks you are too unclean for this. Make sure that it isn't you that thinks you are too impure. Make sure that this morning you come to Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you, he is the place of forgiveness. He is, you know, he's the, he's the Prince of Peace. And he is, as Peter tells that idyllic crowd that are gathered in Cornelius' house, both Jews and Gentiles, Jesus Christ really is the Lord of all. Let's pray.